This week at Hope Point. All of the things, the pleasures of life you see in creation, they're the hem of his garment, but one day we'll no longer see the hem in creation. We'll see his face for millions of years as we gaze back upon our life from our vantage point in heaven. We're going to see, just like with the Israelites in the ark, Jesus Christ on our worst day was with us every day for 40 years for 80 years, for 100 years, the reason that we made it home was because the true ark, Jesus, never left us. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's holy word. In 1981, released a blockbuster film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was set in 1936 when an archaeologist and a professor, a university professor named Indiana Jones, was commissioned by the United States government to go to the other side of the world and find a biblical artifact called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold-covered box in which the Ten Commandments were carried around during Israel's sojourn for 40 years in, in the wilderness. And in the movie, the reason why the United States government wanted is there was a tradition that whatever nation possessed the ark, no other nation in the world could defeat them. So it was a military motive. And maybe the writers got that motive from Numbers chapter 10, which says about the nation of Israel. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord, three days journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Well, as we know from reading the Old Testament, the power was not in that sacred box. The power was in God, and he was represented, his presence among the people was represented in the box. But for those of us who are old enough to, you know, remember that film, it is fun. It was fun to travel in our imaginations with Indiana Jones around the world. <clears throat> and it was also fun a few years after the movie was released for Lisa and I to travel to Hollywood Studios in Florida where for just a moment in time due to the photographic imagination of Hollywood, I got to be Indiana Jones for just a little while. But what I want to talk to you today is about something that's not part of anybody's imagination and that is the true uh, lessons we learn from the Ark of the Covenant. It's so important that it's mentioned a hundred times in the Bible. The last mention of the ark is in the verse we looked at last week. Revelation eleven nineteen. then God's temple in heaven was open and within his temple was seen the ark of the covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, there really was a box uh, called the ark of the covenant. And it was the most important piece of all of the furniture that Israel had in its possession. And when I think about the Ark of the Covenant, I think there are two lessons we can learn from it that we'll look at today. God provides a way for sinners to come near him and receive mercy. Second lesson from the Ark, God walks with his weak people and enables them to do great things by his power. Before I tell you why I think John mentioned the Ark 
at the end of the last book of the Bible and talking about the end of times, I think I should take you back to maybe where the ark came from. In 1400 BC, Israel was rescued by God after they had spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And then as soon as he brought them out of Egypt, they began their sojourn in the wilderness. He said, build a worship center for me. And I can assure you it was much less elaborate than this one. God said in Exodus 25, 8, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. And there have been many depictions of what it, it looked like, but we know the, enough that all of the people of Israel, two and a half million, they, they encircled it there was a wall of draperies around the courtyard and then the tent, the holy tabernacle, the most holy place was inside that, that perimeter. Not many of you live in a tent, I bet. Because you say, I need more than that. Probably you pass by neighborhoods, I wouldn't live in that neighborhood. You just, we said, no, I want to live. How about God. Of all the places he could choose to live, look at, look at the description of God in, in the Old Testament. Could, there are many verses like this. Who is like the Lord our God, seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? It's a mind-blowing thing that the eternal God, who cannot be constrained by time, the infinite God, who cannot be confined by space, the eternal, infinite, immense God, who fills all of time and space, chose to dwell in a tent in the desert with his people. And that's the message of the Ark of the Covenant, God's great desire to humble himself and live with us. He lived with us in a tent. He lived with us in a human body named Jesus. He lived with us in your body, which is also called the tabernacle of God. But today we're talking about his first dwelling place, and that is the tent or the tabernacle. Inside it was a couple pieces of furniture, but none more important than this one. Exodus 25.10, God said, Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, or acacia wood, a sacred chest, and then here are the dimensions, about four feet long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. So four by two by two, basically. Overlay it with pure gold and then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, that's the Ten Commandments that were written on stone tablets, which I will, which I will give you. So there have been many depictions through the years, if you read enough about the Bible, in the Bible. It's basically a box, four by two by two, overlaid with gold, had a cover on it. And if you read more, the, on top of the uh, gold cover were hammered, hammered out gold angels that looked at each other. The top cover was called the atonement seat or the, the atonement cover, or the mercy seat, which we'll describe in a minute why it was, was called that. And inside the box were the Ten Commandments. Now, what I want to tell you about and make you appreciate your, the privilege that you got to enter into God's presence today with that glorious third song and more to come, I assure you. It's what a privilege it is to draw near to God, something that wasn't really possible in the Old Testament. This is the, the directions of how the priest could approach God once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Look how careful he had to be. Leviticus 16.11, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering. Now he's entering into that tent, into the back of the tent called the holy place. 
the most holy place. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement. He's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. Then he's to say, take some of the blood's bull, the bull's blood, and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. So you got the tent, the sacred box inside it, the Ten Commandments, which represented God was holy, morally perfect. He's the opposite of everything that human sin is. And here now, a human being, a sinner, is approaching God one day of the year. Now, just, um, and then after he made atonement with, for his sin by sprinkling blood on top of the cover, then he had to... Uh, atone for your sin, the people's sin. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with his blood. And just so you can appreciate what was going on during this whole transaction, this priest, Aaron, who entered this tent once a year, was not allowed to see the very box that he was sprinkling the blood on. I asked Hunter in the green room a few minutes ago, did he order the, um, the smoke machine for the stage today? Because it would have been very useful. Because Aaron basically had to produce his own smoke machine so he would not see the sacred box while making the, um, the sacrifices for him and the people. Leviticus 16.12, he's to take a censer full of burning coals from the outside altar and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. And the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. So if he, he did anything wrong as he was entering the tent, he would immediately die. If he ever saw the box while making uh, atonement for his own sins or your sins, the sins of the people, he would die. In fact, the bottom of the priest's robe had gold bells on it so they could hear him moving around and be encouraged that while he was making the sacrifice for sin, he had not died. Jewish tradition says that a rope was even tied to the priest that just in case he died for inappropriate, doing something inappropriate back there in the presence of the holiness of God that they could pull his body out. So all of this is to, to remind us what a privilege it is to be able to approach a holy God any time we want, unlike the people who first approached the ark of the covenant. You remember what God told Moses, no one may see me and, and live. Now this is very interesting. No one can see God and live. Yet in our verse in Revelation, look what John sees. Revelation eleven nineteen. then God's temple in heaven was opened and within him and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody ever saw it in the Old Testament. It was either surrounded by smoke or when God's people moved, they had to put a leather, they had to put leather over it and then a blue curtain over that so nobody could see it. And here, it is a description that we were able to see not the Ark of the Covenant, much better than that. This is just a symbol. We've said for two weeks in a row now, there's not such a thing as a temple in heaven. It's a symbol of God himself. And our ability to see him. Look how John later states it in the book. 
Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and Jesus, the Lamb, are its temple. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face. So here in the Old Testament, you couldn't even see a wooden box. And now in heaven, we will see the face of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. No longer the blood of bulls. No longer the blood of goats. But the blood of Christ has given us the ability to one day see the face of God. We see the hem of his garment now with whatever you're going to do tomorrow for Labor Day. Maybe you'll be on the lake. Maybe you'll take a ride up to the mountains. Maybe you're cooking out. and you're, you'll, All of the things, the pleasures of life you see in creation, they're the hem of his garment. But one day, we'll no longer see the hem in creation. We'll see his face because of Jesus' blood. We can enter the most holy place I love 1 Timothy chapter 6 to describe the the unspeakable privilege of seeing God because not until heaven does that happen. 1 Timothy 6, 16, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. How How do you approach unapproachable light? You get cleaned by the blood of Christ. You die in Christ and you're transported to heaven. And all of a sudden this fleshly body is transformed and you're given supernatural capacities through the blood of Christ to see the face of God. And unapproachable light, you're able to approach all the way into that light because of Christ. So the first thing we learn from the Ark of the Covenant is that God provides a way for sinners to come near him. The second thing we learn from the Ark is that God walks with his weak people and enables them to do great things by his power. If there's any one statement made by the Ark of the Covenant, it's that God walks with his people, lives with his people, sorrows with his people. You know, the Ark of the Covenant... In that tent for often many times in the 40 years in the wilderness. It stayed put. Israel stayed put. But when they moved, the ark went with them. They covered it with that leather. They covered it with that blue cloth. And men would put that ark on shoulders, on their shoulders by poles that went through sides of the ark. And they would carry it to a new location representing God's presence is going wherever you go. There was no other nation in the history of the Old Testament that God said, I will be with you forever and wherever. Only to Israel, only to his people, not to his enemies did God say that, but only to his children did he say, I will strengthen you with my presence and I will, I will never leave you. Now it's interesting, and I think this is worth putting in your head, the Ark of the Covenant had not one thing inside the box, but three things inside the box. All three things teach us something very dear about God. So I think it's important for you to put to memory what were the three things inside the box. Hebrews 9 says the ark contained, number one, the golden jar of manna. So it contained manna. So I'll find out what it is in a minute. Aaron's staff, his walking stick, and the stone tablets, which are the Ten Commandments written on stone. We've already talked about what they mean. They mean that God is holy and he's forgiven us for being unholy. But now I want to talk about that second thing or the second thing we'll talk about today, the jar of manna. What does the ark teach us about God knowing that he commanded them to put manna 
a jar of manna. Well, it basically means the jar of manna reminds us that the prayer that Jesus told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, was manifested for 40 years because of the manna that God provided for the people to eat. Let me take you back to Exodus chapter 16. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament enough, but one of the favorite things God's people loved to do was grumble. They loved to doubt. They loved to predict the future that this is not going to work out well. I know I'm not talking to anybody here, but this is primarily what they did all the time. In this case, they did it because they were hungry. And they just uh, deduct, deduct, they came to the conclusion <laughs> that they were going to die. So the ark teaches us God's faithfulness to meet our needs. Exodus 16, the Israelites said to their leaders, Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, that's where they had been, in slavery. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Not difficult at all to see ourselves in those verses, is it? God calls us to something new and the moment that we walk from the familiar into the unfamiliar, we tell him we want to go back. Even if we miss God's purpose for our lives, we want to go back. That's what they were saying. Now you think about this, they had been in torturous, humiliating slavery for 400 years. They had only been out for two months. Two months of having to walk by faith. And after two months of walking by faith, they said, we don't care what happens tomorrow. Today, we want food. And for that, we're willing to go back and miss God's will. Maybe we could say it like this. Our sinful flesh will choose short-term comfort even if it produces long-term misery. The unspiritual mind always prefers easy over right. Well, God, even though they were grumblers, God was kind and merciful as he is to me. Had my share of grumbling yesterday and he didn't kill me. I'm preaching today. Exodus 16:10 While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud they're grumbling and God's glory is coming to meet their need The Lord said to Moses I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites tell them in the morning you will be filled with bread then you will know that I am the Lord your God in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp and when the dew was gone then flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. I guess we could call them frosted flakes. <laughs> when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? I just told you. Kellogg's. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. Has this not been the story of your life, especially as we go to Labor Day? 
what you needed, God provided through your work and all other kindnesses. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar. This is back to the ark. Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and then place it before the Lord in the ark to be kept for the generations to come. And the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they reached the border of Canaan. Wow. 40 years. I don't know what you tend to cycle in your head over and over again where you begin to fear maybe finances. I mean, there's a lot of things you could fear. Some people fear health. I, for me, I think because of my job, sometimes I fear like I don't have anything. I'll never have anything else to say. Sort of went through that this week. And I don't have a sermon. And Lisa just looks at me and she says, for 35 years, 35 years, 35 years, he's provided manna. Food for you and for our people, he will, he will do it. 40 years, so we, we praise you, Lord. 40 years, 61 years, and however old you are, God's provided. Well, the ark also uh, provides another lesson, or teaches another lesson about God's, God's provision and God's faithfulness to provide leaders. So he provides daily needs, but he also provides people to guide you spiritually, to help you in your, your journey. And by God's grace, I get to be one of those for you. We got to, I don't know if you know this, but our website, we have reviews like hotel.com. Like it's great. People write reviews. And this week, I loved it. They're not always great, but this week was great. The review was, the guy just gets up there, teaches the Bible and sits down and that's it. Love that review. <laughs> like nothing else. He said this. So I get to be one of your leaders and I've had leaders and you're leaders to me and thank you. Well, so God's people, I think I mentioned a minute ago, they like to be grumpy. They not only, they not only were grumpy when they were hungry, they were they, they just like to doubt their leadership. They just like things to be going great. And then they're saying, no, nah, I don't think this is going to work out well. We don't have the right leaders. And so let me tell you about this incident where they decided to pull, pull that stunt. So as you know, the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. So one day, uh, 12 delegates came to Moses and Aaron. And they basically said to Moses... How is it that Aaron gets to be the leader? We are as capable of leading as he is. And, you know, Moses basically says, no, you're not. Not because there's anything special about him, but because there's God has chosen him, and I'm going to prove it. So then God lines everybody up, and then this is how God showed his, that he had sent this leader named Aaron Number 17, two. Speak to the Israelites and get 12 staffs, you know, walking sticks, from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. Place them in the tent of meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man that I choose will sprout and I'll rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. The next day Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. 
So no doubt for Aaron and Moses, it was a day of almond joy. It's a bad day for corny jokes. But truly, you know, whenever you think about this, this staff, and remember, I'm teaching you about this staff because it's one of the three items that was put inside the holy box later. But this, this staff, this walking stick of Aaron, it was lifeless, it was dead wood, and yet when God supernaturally touched it with his life, it was able to produce life. And so I, I look at all that God has done in the Old Testament, how faithful he was to care for Israel by giving them leaders. Then I look at all that God has done in the New Testament, in this sprawling, infant, vulnerable church, especially in the first 300 years of severe persecution. All that God did was to raise up shepherds to help this church. One reason we highlighted Todd and Roy today along with others to help lead. And then I look at the 21 centuries that God has been faithful. Sometimes it's a church planner that starts a church. Sometimes it's a missionary to go overseas and launch a new movement in an unreached uh, part of the world. And I just look at God's kindness to provide leaders at right times to help God's people move literally sometimes from one week to the next. And then I look at my own life. Sometimes doubt regarding who I am has come from other people in 35 years. Sometimes it has been vicious. But most of the time, the condemning voice that tells me I, I'm not capable of leading comes from within. It's the own, my own lie that I'm believing. And it's in those times where God says, put your staff down on the ground. And God, overnight, many times, the next morning I wake up and God is producing life out of my barren soil. soul. God has produced life out of my unfaithful heart. And right when I think it's over, God says, we're just beginning and new life has come again. And so I want to tell you time and time again, you know, this church in 19 years, I, I've served with some people here a long, long time. And uh, for years, for, uh, you know, years. And then I've served with our newest staff member, I've served with Caleb for exactly a week. But the cool thing is, whether it's a week or whether it's, you know, years, it's like God has just given you at the right time the most, what a staff, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful, literally Aaron's staff, beautiful, this staff is, you know, I guess my staff that I hold are these dear people that surround me. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the power of God that's on, that's on their life. Finally, what we learn from the Ark of the Covenant is God's faithfulness to make, to make a way when really there was no other way. So for 40 years, God's people lived in the wilderness. Then on the day or the week that it was time for them to enter the promised land, the only thing that separated the wilderness from the new land was the Jordan River. There are times where it would have been easy to cross, but at this particular time when God said it's time, it was at flood stage. Two and a half million people trying to walk through a flooded river is a, key, is a recipe for disaster. 
there's no way on paper it would have worked out. And God said, we're going to cross right now. And this is how we're going to do it. Moses is gone. Aaron's gone. Now there's a new leader, Joshua. So we turn to Joshua chapter 4. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord will go into the Jordan River ahead of you. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. I love how they just pause to say that. The Lord, the Lord of all the earth. Set, as soon as they set foot, as soon as the priest carrying the Ark set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off. And stand up in a heap. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. This is amazing. This is just like the Red Sea. Not only did the water stop flowing, but the ground was dry. Not muddy. Dry ground. What a miracle. As soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge. The water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. I love this story every time I read it and I marvel not only at what I just said. The people saw the water stop. They saw the ground turn dry. But what I just laugh about is what in the world were the people thinking up in Zarethan? 17 miles upstream is where this town is. And all of a sudden, they're at their little breakfast, their lunch cafe having coffee. And all of a sudden, water begins to pile up in the river. I don't even know what that means. Did it pile up? Did it go to flood? Did it flood farmland? But all of a sudden, it, water just starts backing up from the Jordan River at flood stage. What a beautiful way. But the point is, by the power and presence of God as symbolized by the ark, God enabled his people to do what they could not do on their own. And finally, we see the ark in one of the most familiar battles of the Old Testament. Let me just tell you what's going on. So they crossed the Jordan River. And now in order to, to get into the promised land, they, they have to conquer a city. So they're, they're all, they've seen the miracle of the, of, the, of the river stopping. And now they're looking at this... The first city they got to conquer, it's called Jericho. The, the walls around Jericho are famous in all of archaeological finds. The walls were 13 miles, I mean 13 miles, <laughs> 13 feet high and 11 feet thick. And Israel, untrained in this kind of battle, has to conquer this city as their first city to get in the new land. So they see warriors on top of the walls. The walls are 11 feet thick, 13 feet high. Again, on paper, this is not going to work out. They can't do it. And God says, I have a plan. And this is his plan. Joshua 6, 3. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark of the covenant. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priest blowing the trumpet. So there's your battle plan for conquering the world, the, the, the strongest city in antiquity. I guess before Babylon. Get the priest, put the ark on their shoulders, give them seven priests in front of the ark carrying seven trumpets and start blowing trumpets. This is your battle plan. This is God's way 
so different than our way. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Now the reason I stuck this verse in here is I really love the combination of this radical dependency on God, like prayer, and this radical readiness to fight like military warriors. So whoever says that the answer is always only prayer, they're wrong. Whoever says the answer is always a better strategy, they're wrong. Here we see radical dependency on God, carry the ark, blow the trumpets, that's prayer, and be ready to fight like men of courage, which is the practical part of ministry. So this is, uh, this is what it looked like the day, every day for six days. The seven priests carrying seven trumpets before the Lord went forward blowing their trumpets and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. So I just love this scene. You've got this major city walled, warriors on top, and you've got the nation of Israel. You've got these priests and the horn blowers. They are they get up in the morning and they make a trek around the city blowing their horns and then they go back to camp that night. That must have been weird. These warriors up there with their arrows listening to music, listening to trumpets, watching very casual this encircling the city and then watch these guys go back to their camp and they do this day one, day two, day three, the same thing for six days. Surely these warriors, either they, either they were curious or they mocked them, probably mocked them, but they didn't mock them on day seven. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. So why did I preach on this today? Because I told you 400 times times in the book of Revelation, the writer is thinking back to the Old Testament. And this is why I think John included the ark story in Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel, this is the seventh time trumpets have blown in the book. This is the end of the world. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. Oh my goodness. After 21 centuries of the earth struggling on a very hard earth, the seventh trumpet sounded just like the seventh trumpet sounded at the walls of Jericho. 
And it was not the holy box, the Ark of the Covenant that was now coming through and rewarding servants with the new land. It was Jesus Christ, the true Ark of the Covenant, with his people rewarding them with heaven. The walls fall. God's enemies are judged. The Lord returns and his servants are rewarded. And for millions of years, as we gaze back upon our life from our vantage point in heaven, we're going to see, just like with the Israelites in the ark, Jesus Christ on our worst day was with us every day. For 40 years, for 80 years, for 100 years, the reason that we made it home was because the true ark, Jesus, never left us and always led us home. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.